your highest level of technology is your own feel. Ultimately, it is you and yourself. Like it is you and your feel. That, in, in my opinion, is the lowest of the lowest hanging fruit as a performer is understanding your feel. And when you can understand your feel, then you understand your internal dialogue. When you do that, you understand your breathing. As performers, like feel is the bottom line of what you do. I tell baseball pitchers, no matter what, it's you on the mound. I will never be out there to throw a pitch with you. Your mom and dad will never be out there to swing the bat with you. Whatever we perceive your box score as, your statistics as, like you're the one that has it. It's your career. It's your life. Like it comes back to decisions. It's your decisions. And how are you supposed to know your decisions that optimize behavior if you don't recognize feel, if you don't get an understanding and create a space for your emotions after thinking, or if you don't understand your physiology? Welcome to the Offball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm an Olympian performance coach, but more important than those things, I'm deeply curious and super fascinated by high achievers, performers, both inside of sport and outside of it, renegades and mavericks and people who are pushing the boundaries because we're in this incredible time where performance is evolving and shifting. It's going well beyond effort. It's going past working harder. We're uncovering all of these incredible mysteries around performance based on how you live your life, based on how you control your mind, based on how well you're able to feel or how well you're able to manage what you are feeling and experiencing. Today's guest embodies all of that. And he's gone through an incredible journey playing professional baseball, all the way through the school system, moving into sports performance, and now really being a world leader or someone that I'm paying attention to and respect deeply in and around the stress, breath, and high-performance environment. He works with elite athletes, young athletes, and general pop in Minnesota. His name is Harvey Martin, and he's the creator of the MindStrong Project, which is really using internal control mechanisms and mindset, sports psychology, as well as exposure opportunities to stressors to create a more resilient and robust human being. He goes into some wonderful stories about his life, about critical moments in time, around decisions he's made, about how he's learned from failures or had to push through these incredibly unique stories that I really loved and I'm sure you will love as well. But this is about success and the mind and quitting and the timing of life and fundamentally feeling what he stands for is creating a more robust and profound space within yourself to feel and understand yourself and and create intuition or at least to have a relationship with your intuition so that when you're on the mound when you're at bat when you're doing whatever you're doing from a performance perspective, you understand yourself and you're able to play your best game inside out versus outside in. So this was a banging conversation. We go just under two hours. You're going to get a lot from this, uh, but have some patience. Listen to Harvey, take in his wonderful stories because there's a lot of gold within them. And we talk 
later on in the conversation about MindStrong Project and how he's really innovating in the stress, exposure, and uh, sports psychology and performance space. So with that, I introduce you, Harvey Martin. Let's get it on. You're parked on the side of a street late night somewhere in Minnesota. Lights are off. You're in a dark, uh, lighted place, but I'm sure you're in a good place to, to think, man. Well, welcome. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm actually, in a, I'm actually in a way better spot to think now. Now, I was in a parking lot. Now, I'm completely confined in the local uh, woods right across from our, our facility. So, this will be very dark and quiet, and, and I'm just talking to you all the way across the street. <laughs> fully fully focused man i love it well harvey let's let's start it off man like who who is harvey top level just to get a, a bit of an idea of what uh what you're about right now and what you got going on yeah man so you know top level right i'm what i'm doing now right now currently is um i'm full-time mind strong projects so i'm the founder and uh our main coach of mind strong which is basically we work with athletes and it's kind of taken a course for its own, which we'll talk about, but it's, we really try to work in the, the system of mental training, mindset training, uh, breath work, and then the ability to influence the environment around you, either as a culture, team setting, uh, individually, those sort of things. But ultimately what it comes down to is trying to control performance uh, as a performer and doing that in the moment through mental training and breath work, which obviously we'll, we'll talk heavily about. And when it comes down to that, that's, that's the, that's the core of what we teach. I love it, man. What a, what a beautiful thing to share. And we live in parallel universes. So let's, let's dive in, man. But before we dive into all of that goodness that you're doing presently, I just want to get a little bit of a, a feel for, your youth and, and a little bit about you growing up. So, um, you know, were, were you always a talented kid or did you have to fight for it? Cause you, you had a, a fairly solid career and, and spent a lot of time yeah. playing baseball. What, uh, what were you like as a young athlete? Yeah. How far back are we going here, Martin? Are we going, you know, we can go wherever you want to go. What feels right. So I'll give, uh, I'm only going to say this because I'll get the boys to laugh here a little bit. And we were make they were making some good jokes on me today before we went out and coached. But so, yeah, when I was a youth, I'll just be r real quick on this, but for the laughing part, everyone will get a kick out of it. But, uh, when I was, I've always been, I was always good at sports. There's, uh, there wasn't really denying my ability to play baseball, basketball, or football. I was, I was always rather good. I always played up. Um, when I was younger, my dad had, he had put me in a position to n not necessarily play at the youth level. He kind of saw that as detrimental, which I actually now as an adult, I really agree with that. And it's kind of mm -hmm. counter to a lot of things and what you hear a lot of, but like, he didn't want me to play T-ball. Uh, I didn't really play young, young basketball. Um, I didn't play football at an early age. I, I didn't play football really until the end of middle school. And uh, for baseball, I think I might have played a little bit of where like coaches pitch you or whatnot, but I really didn't play baseball until I was seven and I made a 10-year-old baseball team. And that was kind of my family's rule. Like if I could make an older team where the kids pitched, it was more legit guys had been kind of made it through or like all those kids who kind of quit six, seven, eight, nine. 
um, my dad had always kind of wanted to keep me away from that. So I, I didn't really realize it or understand it at the time. I just kind of listened to dad. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, I was allowed to try out. I was allowed to play for older teams and something that I'm also very grateful for that my parents did is when I was a young kid, they put everything on me. So I was always in charge of my, my choices. So what I mean by that was when I wanted to play baseball, if I wanted to play for a specific team, I had to call that team and connect with that coach, which was horrifying as a seven-year-old and calling a grown man. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the family rule as me growing up I had to make the phone calls if I made if I tried out for three teams they would take me there and if I made all three uh then I'd have to tell the other two teams that I wasn't going to play for them and I had to do all those calls so it was a it was a lot of crying (laughs) early on when I was talking to adults in a positive way but I just was nervous and I used to hate that but I look back at that now and I'm so, so fortunate and so grateful that, that they put me in those positions. And, and it put, it really raised my game. Uh, I played at higher levels because of that. I would train hard and, and it was always up to me, you know, so I did that as a youth, but I, I laughed because where I was getting chirped by the boys today was uh, the youth was not, it was a weird time for me because uh, I was actually, <laughs> I was put into special education classes when I was young. And, uh, and I ended up years later, I ended up passing out of that. And it was a really weird situation because my teachers had misdiagnosed me with some reading disabilities and some communication disabilities. And it was a really weird thing. And the only reason why it's ironic is we literally just talked about this before we went to work today and all my buddies back here just make fun of me about it now, which is hilarious for us. And, uh, But yeah, so when I was young, I was, uh, I was kind of isolated. I was a really shy person. Um, didn't really find much attractiveness in school. I didn't really feel like I was able to do things because I didn't go to class with the other students. And I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really see that as a successful avenue, but I knew that I could play sports and I knew that uh, I could do that. And it was weird because if you see the dots I just tied in is that when I was in elementary school, I was playing with like the middle schoolers. So I was playing mm-hmm. on their, their teams. But then in elementary school, like I didn't play sports with any of them. So no one really knew me or identified with me as an athlete. And I was, like I said, I was put into special education at a young age. So it was like, I didn't have class with anybody either. So I just went to school, you know, and I didn't really hang out with many people. And, uh, and I found like peace and competitiveness in baseball and in basketball and then eventually football a little bit. But yeah, it was a weird time, man. I ended up, I ended up getting misdiagnosed and was back in the classes a little bit later on. And now it's like funny for my friends and I to, do they, you know, make fun of me, but that's what, that's the baseball. So it's, the, it's, uh, I find it super interesting that you, were responsible for yourself at seven, but you were held back in school with the potential or misdiagnosed learning disability. How wild is that? You were, you were calling adults and essentially making the calls for yourself uh, with, with while well, having a misdiagnosed learning disability. That's hilarious, man. Well, your, your parents are visionaries because that I don't think is happening as much right now. And so many youth are playing without understanding the consequence or understanding the responsibility of whatever they're, they're doing and just being shielded by it. So um, that's pretty sweet. How, how did that, 
impact you in in your future years? Like, give, give a quick little uh, share on that one. Like, how did that serve you better um, later on in your career? Yeah, man. And you know, that's a great, that's a great question. And again, it, the irony here, cause we were just having this conversation. Uh, but it, it's, it changed my life. Like I firmly believe that, you know, I'm 30 years old now and I'm talking about a time when I was like eight, you know? And, uh, and obviously I, I remember like stories about that. I remember my parents fighting for me a lot in school, uh, kind of telling, you know, they, they were the ones that like pushed me out of it. And I had to take a bunch of psychological tests and these sort of things. And, I ended up like having really high IQ numbers and that's where kind of the misdiagnosis happened is it looked as if I didn't understand the, the context that I was learning, but it was almost, and again, this is through whatever that was 20 years ago, but it was more so of, it didn't grab my interest. It didn't grab my curiosities. And so I was very shy mm-hmm. and I wouldn't speak. And that was, that came off as uh, inadequate of reading ability, you know, and those sort of things. Things. And so what was weird about that, why that's a really good question is because I didn't see the benefits of that until now. And I actually talk about that a lot when I talk at schools or to younger kids now. And what I mean is when I went through high school, I ended up doing really poor in high school too. Like I never really carried over a 3.0 GPA. Uh, I had a 17 and a 19 on my ACT. And I remember you had to get over an 18 to get a division one athletic scholarship, which I had to have that were from my, where my family was at in, the, in that time of living, I needed a scholarship to play ball. So, you know, I got a 17 out of ACT and it was like, dude, come on, let's, let's clean it up. But I, <laughs> like, it just, I just wasn't that good of a student. And where I'm going with this is, you know, a lot of my life growing up was, I was like expected to do poorly in school and I was expected to do well in baseball. And I think a lot of times with youth athletes or youth students is we as leaders, like don't understand what we're saying to people or what, what their environment is creating for their curiosities or their visions or their self-confidence because like you would tell me when I was a younger kid, like, Hey man, don't study for that test. Like you're, you don't get good grades. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like let's go play baseball, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I don't need to do my homework. Like I'm a bad student. And, you know, I ended up getting my, and like you talked before we get on this, like I ended up getting my master's degree and I was a college professor while I was playing college baseball. And you look at that and go, well, how is that possible? you know, and it, and it took me a long time to get that to click that like you are responsible for your decisions and your choices. And when you find that sort of power and you find what makes you curious in life, you become very excited to learn things and you, you want to create your own wisdom based off the knowledge you've acquired. And if you don't have the freedom to create your own experiences at a young age, if you don't have the freedom to be curious, if uh, you're not pushed to a level of responsibility in all avenues, not just sports, but like I'm talking school right now, mm-hmm. if you're not at a young age, like you essentially by osmosis, like you develop to the environment that's in front of you. And my environment educationally didn't change until I got to college. And so before all that, I just assumed my threshold was a 2.9. I just assumed my threshold was C's or C minuses on test. So I lived like that. But then in baseball, I assumed I would play in the big league. 
things. So <laughs> I trained and competed like that in baseball and I went to school and studied like that in school. And it was very, you know, it was very, uh, I mean, I was young, you know, and I just listened to who was talking to me and I had a lot of, you know, people who assumed I wasn't good at school. So I just followed the crowd, you know? Yeah. And so there's so many things that come up there for me that we could have an entire podcast on that one. But I just want to say, like, are you paying attention to LeBron James and uninterrupted right now? Is that on your radar? Not, it's on my radar. Not, not, not enough to be able to go deep into it, but yeah, go ahead. So I'll just touch up on this because it, it makes me think of for you as an athlete and, and a young student, you know, you prioritize sport over academics and the dialogue around the whole, let's just say career or pathway. I was like, I'm playing the majors and, and school's not that important. And that was really culture because at that moment in time, you're an athlete, you play on the field, sacrifice your body, go through the thing, earn your dollars, score some touchdowns, hit some home runs, whatever sport you play. And that's the process. You're an athlete, but we're really moving into this new era where LeBron James is really building a narrative around you are more than, and uh, he just launched a wicked collab today with, uh, with Nike for shoe. And on a, on one of it says you are more than an athlete. And on his other shoe, it says you're more than a basketball player. And you know, the people that are, being supported by or, or working with uninterrupted, you know, there's an athlete football athlete who just negotiated his own $56 million contract. Like he represented himself. He's a businessman athlete. And so now we're starting to see this next generation of thought and hopefully youth are seeing this as like, Oh my goodness, I am an athlete and I am a businessman or I'm someone who knows how to represent other people or I understand media and marketing. I understand that I'm a brand. I know that being an athlete is one part of a greater equation. So it's interesting how culture shifts, you know? For sure. That's powerful too, man. And I, and I knew, like I said, I knew the, the surface level of what he was accomplishing. And as you're saying that, I'm just thinking of some, some guys that I know that are doing that and chasing that. And I think you are seeing more of that, which is, uh, which obviously his influence is huge. So I hope, I mean, I'd support that, that mission entirely. And without going too deep into this one, I think fundamentally you and I are both after the same thing where we're looking at using sport as a, a way to grow personally. You know, it's not just about the stats and the metrics. We're right. really trying to evolve what people are capable of doing on and off the field of play. So um, story checks in, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I entirely. I agree entirely with that, man. Awesome. <laughs> uh, back to you as a youth, you know, when did you specialize understanding you played a, a few different sports? Like when did you as a young man make the decision to, to focus more on baseball and really put all of your intention into becoming a professional baseball athlete? Yeah. You know, I've been asked this a few times. I think that, I think that I always knew and I mean, I had, I always wanted to play major league baseball. I, you know, I had, it was all in the season, you know, football, when it was football, I wanted to play in the NFL, you know, when it was winter, I wanted to play in the NBA. And I thought I could do all of that until I was probably until a couple years ago, you know, but, but uh, I, I just, I, like I said, I knew that I was good at, at sports early and I loved it early. Like I, it was never, it never was hard to me to practice. Like it never seemed 
it never seemed daunting to compete. Like it never failures or those sort of things were exciting to me at a young age. So it was never, and it was, it was just cool to me. You know, some guys, as I got older, I realized people didn't want to spend summer vacation playing baseball in tournaments. And I did, you know, and my family and I, we had great, we had great family memories that, that took place around baseball fields. So it became more than just me playing. It ended up becoming uh, a family deal. And mm-hmm. some of my to this day, uh, I've played baseball with, and I've played baseball with them as childhood college teammates. I mean, standing in weddings now is in my thirties with guys I played baseball with when I was 16 and 22 and 25 is, is amazing. And I think that that, like th- those things were so special to me. And I knew that I wanted to do that. I, I also tell people too, is, I mean, I had a, I kind of knew how to get to major league baseball. And what I mean by that was my, my uncle won a world series with the St. Louis Cardinals. He played professionally in the big leagues for, I think six years. I might be a little off on that. And then my dad was a bullpen catcher for the Detroit Tigers. And my, uh, my grandpa was a division one baseball player. I believe he, he had gotten some time in the minor leagues. I can't, that's kind of dated back. I can't remember his exact path, but point being like when I practiced, I'd have guys who currently played in the big leagues would be coaching me, you know? Yeah. 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 And I just had a little bit, I had a little bit of an edge there. I had people who, who kind of kept me out of uh, things. They kind of kept me on the right path. They, they, they made me believe that that was possible. You know, like you, you said it already, my parents as visionaries. I mean, I grew up in a household that truly there's no boundaries. You're, you're capable of, of achieving great things. I've never had family members who haven't, who haven't allowed me to think that. So when I was young, I just believed that I could play in the big leagues. And as I got older, it became more and more realistic and, you know, you start hearing from, I was hearing from a couple of professional teams when I was in high school. And so started seeing that being a realism. And that was kind of when I started specializing is probably my sophomore year. I stopped playing football and I started playing just basketball and baseball. And I used basketball to be in shape for baseball uh, and to just move laterally. I absolutely loved basketball too. And it was just important for me to be in shape. I had a lot of good friends on that. And uh, I ended up focusing basketball in the winter and I would play baseball spring, summer and fall. I started doing that sophomore year of high school. And that was when the, that was when recruitment started coming in. And, and that was kind of when that started happening. But I ran basketball all the way out till my I was actually thinking about playing full sports in college, but it just wasn't going to make sense with the intentions of trying to play professionally. So. I would say hardcore when I was about 17, 18, 19, I kind of knew I'd have a shot. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was when I went all in on trying to make that happen. Beauty. And understanding that, like what, what was a a strength that you had that you consciously leveraged and, you know, how did you leverage that to that strength to succeed? That's a, that's an awesome question. (laughs) Uh, that's a great question, man. I, and you're good at questions. I should have known that coming into this, but, uh, uh, I I look, you know, the reason why that's a good question for me is going back to what I talked about with school and kind of how I think now as a human. And when I was 17, 18, I, you got to remember, I was that 2.8, 17, 19 ACT kid. And not that that was bad. Not that I was doing the wrong things. I, you know, I've never really been an issue for people or been a troubled child, but 
I lived like that. You know, I lived in the sense of I was competitive on the field and I wasn't competitive off the field. And uh, what really woke me up was when I was 19 years old, I was doing really, really well. I redshirted. I was, I kind of had a, a tough year. My first year as a freshman, I ended up redshirting that year and, and not playing. And then my second year, uh, because I wasn't playing and as I alluded towards the way I kind of thought as a 17, 18 year old, I actually was going to transfer and move to Arizona State and be a student. And I had two really, really good friends of mine who were going to do that. And we sent in transcripts to do this. And this is this is going to get to your answer because of what this meant to me. But the day that I sent those transcripts in, uh, Sean Horlbeck, who was with the Chicago Cubs at the time, was lifting with me. And I had told him he was gone now. He played with us the year before. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to leave. I don't want to play baseball anymore. It wasn't really going my way. I was essentially soft. Like I couldn't handle not performing, right? A year mm-hmm. earlier, I was playing the big leagues. A year later, I don't get any playing time. So I wasn't able to handle like failure. It was the first time I failed in my life in sports. So I was a, I was soft about it. And this, and that's just, it's, it's just the truth, right? So I was going to quit and I was going to leave and I was going to go be a college student at Arizona State which sounds really fun when you're soft about things and Arizona state sounds. <laughs> um, so I was going to do that. And Sean had told me to pitch as a joke. So the coaches would let me pitch, but to be serious about it, cause I went in as a position player, not as a pitcher necessarily. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to leave. So why not? And uh, the next day I threw a bullpen after practice. I asked the coaches if I could do that. And, they said, yeah, as long as I raked the mounds and cleaned up the field and left, you know, and they were just going to let me throw. And I did that. And I ended up throwing decent enough to catch my coach's eye. And he had sent me a text the next morning and said, come in and talk to me. I went in to talk to my coach and my coach said, Hey, I liked your bullpen. Uh, I, I know you were kind of messing around, which I wasn't, but I wanted to make it seem, you know, light and easy so that I could get my shot. And uh, he said, well, we want you to throw another one of those. So I went home and called my parents. I was like, hey, I might become a pitcher here. And, and this was cool. And we'll see what happens. I told my buddies, you know, take it easy on Arizona State. Let's see what happens here. And uh, I ended up throwing another bullpen in practice a couple of days later. And a week after that, I pitched in a game. And I was throwing the ball 90, 90 miles an hour with a really good slider. And wow. about two, three weeks after that, my pitching or recruiting coordinator at the time, he's, he's no longer coaching ball, really good guy. He came up to me and said, you are, you're a major league prospect on the mound. Like you're a potential, you know, draft pick next year. And then I started getting interest, you know, Cincinnati Reds came into the picture. I had the Rangers and all this happened in Martin. This happened in a month. It was insane. And just as you would know it, and you hear these stories all the time, I was pitching. I ended up having like the best statistics in, in the conference as a closer. I was throwing the ball 90 miles an hour. I was getting everybody out, doing really, really well. Um, obviously, stopped the transferring to Arizona State. <laughs> and uh, my la- our last regular season game, our last game of the season, the first hitter I pitched against, I popped my elbow. And oh. I... I threw a pitch and I tore my UCL ligament in my elbow, which is obviously Tommy John now for baseball guys. And uh, 
I didn't know what to do. Like my family had flown in. They'd never really got to see me play in college. They flew in and they're watching me play. And, uh, and there's a bunch of scouts there and I throw a pitch and I heard my elbow pop. I didn't really think much of it. The next pitch I felt it tear. And, uh, yeah, I threw probably three to four more pitches after that. And my elbow swelled up. My umpire, the, my catcher came out and tried to get me to come out of the game. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm ruining my draft slot. I need to get these outs. And the umpire that game knew me because of my uncle. And he had said, son, you're ruining your career. You need to come out of this game. And uh, so I get out of the game. All the scouts left. That sort of deal happens. And a week later, I'm sitting in Arizona. I'm sitting in Scottsdale, Arizona with Team USA's doctor. And he did an MRI on me and said I would never play baseball again. So I'm 19 years old. Wow. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, your elbow is so torn. And because you kept throwing through the tear, you essentially ruined your elbow too much to be able to do surgery on it where you'll come back and be able to throw how you threw. And I'll never forget this line. He told me and my mother, I was 19 years old. He said to me, he said, if you get surgery – and you live in Michigan, someday you'll be able to throw snowballs at your kid, but you'll never pitch in a baseball game again. And it was a, it was a terrifying moment, as you can imagine. Uh, I drove home crying. My mom and I didn't really talk much. She was crying. And I remember <laughs> the first thing that happened was I got into our house. My family was actually living in Arizona at the time. I get into my house and my dad found out the news. My mom told him, obviously, before we get in the car. And my dad looks at me and he just goes, are you scared? And I said, dad, I'm terrified. Like, I thought I just ruined everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but more so, I was terrified because I knew how I was acting. Like, I knew that I deserved, in a weird way, I knew that I deserved that injury. Because I knew that I didn't deserve that success. Because I was. I was like an early college partier. Um, didn't do homework, didn't do certain things. You know, I was a good teammate, always a good guy, but I didn't, I just didn't earn what was happening. Does that make sense? Oh, brilliant. Totally connects. Yeah. And so my dad had looked at me and he said, are you scared? And I said, I'm terrified. And he said, good, then you need to do the surgery. And he goes, if you're afraid of it, then your success is on the other side of that fear. And obviously broke me in half. Uh, I ran, I went out for a run. I came home, called that doctor, got the surgery that week. And I don't, you know, it it sounds, it has that cliche feel to it, but I've never looked back since that surgery because since that surgery, I, I mean, I ended up throwing 400 innings after that. I was a two time all American. I ended up going on to be the national pitcher of the year at Minnesota state. We lost the national championship and then I got signed by the Milwaukee Brewers. And I played there for a few years. But when I got that surgery, that was like the, if you do this, you, you, you exhaust everything. Like that was my decision. Mm-hmm. And uh, that choice was just so impactful. It, it literally changed my life. My GPA, I never got under a three GPA again. I mean, as you kind of alluded before the podcast, I ended up getting my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um and I, everything changed. My whole life literally changed. It was, it was the best. I tell people this, this is the best thing that ever happened to me was getting that surgery. Having that sort of failure was awesome. It's funny how the challenge is the way, my friend. Wild. <laughs> Ryan Holiday, right? Obviously. Yeah. <sighs> Wild. Well, you kind of answered my follow-up question to that about weakness. 
and, and how did that serve you? And really you just, I love the story of you growing up in that moment. You know, you, you felt like you didn't deserve it. You know, you went in there, pitched that bullpen. There was no pressure on it. Or you designed a situation where there's no pressure. So you, you played well. And over that month, things evolved, but you maybe hadn't, hadn't necessarily put in the time and the work to, to be able to sustain that. And your elbow was, was the first thing to go. And, and then your choice to pursue after that changed the rest of your life, man. That's wild. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was a great, it was a cool time. Scary time. Scary. <laughs> but Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 19, 19 years old. Oof. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, let's, let's move into, uh, you've alluded to the, the master's degree, but let's let's get into a little bit more of the content of that master's degree. You you move more into the sports performance space. Like, what about sports performance interests you? Yeah, I think when you when you get into it, I mean, obviously, I came back from that surgery. I had to get another red shirt, and I just became a little older. Had a great time at Central Michigan. Ended up going to Minnesota State for my fifth and sixth year, as you and I sort of laughed about, because that's just never fun being a six-year college athlete. I mean, it's just tough on a man, you know. Or what? But, uh, but no, when I went there, I got my undergrad at Central Michigan, and I was transferring. So I, you know, it wasn't that I went to grad school to be a master's student. I just hopefully you're in grad school on your six-year college, you know. And so you know, obviously, I would. I'd done some stuff before and I just had been playing ball for so long that I needed to get, I needed to be in grad school to be eligible to play ball. So right. I remember the first class I took was a sports psychology class and it just talked to like the description was goal setting and vision. <laughs> and I mean, just like, uh, you know, competitive athlete, I was like, well, that sounds like that'll help me get drafted. So I'll take, <laughs> I'll take that class, you know? And, uh, that was what I did. So I took that class and then I took another class that was still in that sport performance realm. That was like another psychological sports psychology uh, class. And then there was like a sport management class. So I just tried to set it up to be at school for a, a semester and take a bunch of goal setting and mental training and mindset training classes because I just thought that that would help me play professionally. And I didn't really plan on getting my master's degree. And so I did that. Uh, and I ended up, you know, having a really good year and I didn't get signed. And so I had to go back for a six year. And, but what that did was it was, I loved grad school. Like it was really weird because I went there to just try to get better at baseball. And these classes were so intriguing and I was so curious about them. Like I had found myself for the first time asking questions, reading outside of the curriculum uh, asking p other people questions and sports psychology was something that really opened me up. And, and it just like anything you and I know, like they put sport in front of the psychology, but it was, it was talking about life, you know, mm -hmm. and it was talking about struggle and your frame of mind and, and what that's telling you. And I remember learning about your reticular activating system and how you could, you could put things in front of you and start framing that towards behaviors and, it was just so cool to me. So I ended up, you know, going back for my sixth year and that took me through a, a three semesters of a master's degree. So I was almost done when I signed professionally. And I, like we said, I, you know, I, I didn't want to lose my degree. So I kept going when I was with Milwaukee, I just did classes online 
And when I was in that, you know, there was like a, there was like a connector between me and the sports psychological sports psychiatrist department with the Milwaukee Brewers, because I was in grad school learning a lot of this, you know? And uh, so I would ask people questions there and I would ask people about what is sports psychology? How do I know it's helping me? What is my, what is negative thinking? What is positive thinking? And there were all these things that just were so uh, exciting to me. So that was the first time in school that I ever, I actually really liked school. And it Hmm. taught me, you know, it taught me how to do research. It taught me how to read research, which was pretty cool. I didn't really know that either. Um, And then the level of humans that in master's degree programs, like everybody's there for that, you know. And so that, that helps out tremendously as well. You know, all the students and classmates that I had were college coaches at the time. They were trying to become head coaches. So it was just really cool. We ended up, we would have dinners all the time and just talk about life. And now I do that for a living. You know, like you and I connected because of our ability to communicate about this topic in human performance. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, that obviously did me more favors than any book I ever read. But that was, uh, that was, that's kind of the sport performance world of what drove me into that. I didn't know I would like it so much. I just kind of stumbled into it and, uh, and ran with it. I love it. Well, considering you were playing at the same time as learning and exploring this you know, new area of study that was just so amazingly curious or you were so curious for, like, were, were you able to apply anything while you were learning it? on the field of play? Like, were there, were there any stories of you learning it and then applying it and connecting the dots? Yeah, entirely. I'm actually, I'm happy you asked that because I'll give you a, I'll give you one of my favorite stories about that. And um, Danny Yeager is actually with me one time when I shared this story. So he, he's a, he's a familiar face. I think about in our connectedness of, of people who have heard this, but when I got, one of the things that I was learning was about, controlling the narrative around you and basically manipulating your environment to optimize your behavior. And, you know, just as simple as cleaning your room. Right. And, and I'd heard that before, but then when I was taking sports psychology or those higher level classes, if you will, I was like learning what that was doing to your brain. And that was really cool to, to hear. Right. Like it was, I'd heard people talk about goal setting And then I like heard about the chemical shifting of progression and what that does to your nervous system when you actually check things off. Or I heard about creating a vision that sparks your nervous system to be in an excitement mode. And that basically creates enthusiasm. And all this stuff was so cool to learn because I had been doing that. And I think a lot of high level, a lot of not high level athletes, athletes in general, just humans in general, like it's innate, right? Like our primal need is to move and is to create and is to think and to find ways to act and to solve problems. And I was learning that in my master's degree program and I was learning like the science behind that. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was making a ton of sense to me. And what really, really, I've never looked back of mental training, mindset training was when I, I got done with that fifth year of college and I was told I was going to get drafted. You're right. Like I thought I was going for sure to the Minnesota twins. I thought that he tried tigers. If the twins didn't get me early, I thought the tigers were going to take me and I didn't get drafted. And man, I had thought I was going to get drafted for like, like five years. Right. And I had, I'd never got drafted. So it was like, 
like how much more can you take of this right and so in college baseball they ship you off to these summer leagues in the states here so I would play all across the country. I mean, I wasn't living, I didn't live with my family the whole time I was in college. I would go, I'd fly, I'd drive out or I'd play somewhere. I'd live with a host family and you would play summer baseball and it was cool. And you would do it to try to get signed. So, you know, I went out for my fifth year. I was going into my sixth year of college. I didn't have any money. I ended up sleep. I was sleeping on my buddy's couch uh, my first semester of my sixth year of college. Um, with another buddy who slept on the couch next to me, who's now still <laughs> friends and we live here together. But, you know, we didn't have much money and we were, we were living on couches. We ended up buying a one room and getting twin beds and we were sleeping in the same room. And it was just like, it was just a time, you're a college kid and we were trying to make it, you know? And so I was in that summer getting ready to go back for my sixth year. And it was the second time I was going to quit baseball. So I obviously already shared the first story with you, but Mm -hmm. the second time is August 1st at 2012. And I woke up one morning and my buddy had gotten an offer from the Los Angeles Dodgers and we were eating breakfast and the Dodgers offered him and he turned it down. And I was sitting there going, there's no way, like, how am I not getting that call? I would sign a free agency deal like right now, right? I would fly, I would sign a deal today and get out of here. And I tell my buddy that I'm like, that's insane. How are they not calling me? Like I'm doing really well. I was just an all American. Like I've proven I can come off Tommy John. I've done all this stuff. I'm in grad school. I'm a good kid, right? Like I should be getting signed. And, uh, so I went and asked our manager, like, I was like, Hey, how come I'm not getting any calls from major league teams? Like I want to sign a free agency deal and not go back to the college, my six year college. And, <laughs> and uh, he was like, you really want to sign? I go, yeah. Like, why is this seem uh, odd to you? And right. And, and he, he was unaware that I wanted to sign and that's kind of a deeper story. But the fact of what happened was he calls this team and, calls another team and says, Hey, Martin's willing to sign a free agency deal. And so I was going to sign with what I thought was the Dodgers at the time. And we go to the field, we're waiting on the field. And my manager calls me and goes, I just heard back from the Dodgers. It sounds pretty good. I think you're going to sign a free agency deal. And so I'm sitting there going, really? And he's like, yeah, I think you got it. And so I get all jacked up and he goes, well, what's going to happen is you're going to fly out tomorrow. You're going to get your physical. Dodgers are going to sign you tonight. Uh, you'll fly out and then you're going to, you know, go out to their short season team. You'll play in the instructional league in the fall and then you'll go to spring training. If you make it through all that, you'll make a team after spring training. So I go done deal. I don't need a signing bonus. Let's do this. And uh, I called my whole family and I'll never make this mistake again, but I called my whole family <laughs> and I'm going to sign with the Dodgers. And my whole family goes nuts, right? Like, they're like, oh, man, it finally happened. You don't have to go back for your sixth year. You have a degree already. This is great. And uh, when we, when I get off the phone with everyone in the family, it starts pouring down rain at the field we're playing. I mean, you can't make it up. It's pouring down rain. And our, all our kids, we're playing college summer ball, so we don't have a grounds crew. We got to go work on the field. <laughs> you know, so we're working on the field. While we're working on the field – the, I guess my manager and the front office and whatnot, they're trying to connect with each other. And the Dodgers wanted to sign a guy that like that moment. And I was out working on a baseball field. And so they went with another guy who was playing independent baseball out, out West somewhere. Right. No way. 
Yeah. So I come in and it was like, I'm 20, maybe 22, 23. I don't really remember at the time I was younger twenties and I'm looking, I'm like two weeks away from sleeping on this guy's couch and going back to my six year college. And I just find out that that's what happened. Essentially a rain delay screws this up. Right. (laughs) So I go into the clubhouse and I mean, you, you ought to talk about wanting to quit. I wanted to quit. So I, uh, so I was going to quit and I was, I was literally, it was all over. Called the family. I said, I can't believe I'm so embarrassed. One of the most embarrassing feelings I've had. I told people I was going to sign. I end up, uh, I was with Pete Larson, who's now the hitting coordinator for the Cleveland Indians. Very good friend of mine. Uh, Pete was our hitting coach at the time. And I told Pete, I was going to quit. And Pete said to me, he goes, Harv, go home tonight, drink a six pack of beer and be alone. And he goes, and then tomorrow I want you to fall asleep. And he goes, and tomorrow I want you to just show up. And he goes, don't worry about doing anything. Well, I just want you to go home, go to sleep, come back tomorrow and just show up. And he goes, if I see you tomorrow, I'll be really proud of you. So I went home, followed coach's orders, right? Have my six pack. <laughs> and, uh, I, was sitting on a, I remember I was sitting on a swing in a park right next to the house I was living in. And uh, I wrote in my phone at midnight. I still have the phone. I carry it with me as a reminder. I wrote in my phone. I said, 2013 Harvey Martin, uh, Minnesota State National Pitcher of the Year. And I wrote that in my phone and I made that a reminder for every day. And uh, the cool thing about iPhones is it tracks your days. So now this was like 3,000 days ago or something, right? And, uh, and I still look at that. But I went back. I go back to college. As you know, it. obviously, I went on and played and had a pretty good year. And I ended up signing with the Milwaukee Brewers. But I never told anybody that until the College World Series that I had had in my phone that I would win the National Pitcher of the Year. And I did. And it's not that I won the award that that gave me the lesson of what it is to create a vision and what it is to put it out in front of you and put in the universe of what you want to accomplish. It wasn't the award, it's which is crazy, right? But what it was was the expectation of how I did everything that specific year was a national picture expectation, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when I got asked, because the story got out and people knew that I had had that in my phone. And so people were asking me about that in media days. And uh, I told everybody, I said, it wasn't about the reward. It was more of everything that I did was to be the best in the country at this specific skill. So every meal that I ate quantified as beating somebody, every training set that I had, everything that I did in sleep, everything I did in school, the people I talked to, it all had to correlate to that type of living. And uh, it was a valuable, valuable lesson. And, and I do, I do do that still to this day. I still create visions and I believe in them and I, I just try to move. But that was, uh, that was the first, I learned about, I learned about your brain and what it was capable of creating through thought and vision setting in, in sports psychology and that was the first time I really did it. And uh, obviously, it was, that's a success story. I have a lot of failure stories too. But, you know, that was, uh, that was a really meaningful thing to me. And that was seven, seven or eight years ago now. And that, I still think about that all the time. Wow, man. I love it. I love the turnaround. 
of how you you flipped that on its head, man. Because there was that was a the bottom of the bottom, and you could have gone one of two ways. And not only did you go uh, a way that showed more promise, but you also set your intention from the bottom of that trough and yeah. uh, and saw it through. That's super powerful. I love it, man. Thanks for sharing that. For sure, man. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So you transitioned at some point in time as a player into then player development. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. And so I'm sure we're missing out a few years of baseball here, but I, I really want to get into the player development and what you sure. saw as somebody who had gone through the journey, who understands more about sports performance and sports psychology. And once you started being responsible for selecting athletes and selecting youth and being a part of their development, you know, what did you see in the top level? Um, what stood out for you with young athletes as someone who had gone through it and learned about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. So 2015, they sort of transitioned me into a, started out as an internship. I just was interning for our scout, Drew Anderson, our national cross checker. And, uh, and now I kind of do a hybrid role. So I kind of see professional and amateur. It's a very minimal role. I just have a really good relationship with the Milwaukee Brewers and, and, uh, great people there, man. I mean, I've been with them for a long time now and to, to sort of answer your question of what I saw and what I see now and what I've, how I've kind of transitioned everything I've learned is, you know, when I was, when I first got into scouting, uh, they had told me, they said, you know, there's three ways of picking a major league baseball player. There's the body, the weight, the strength, all that stuff that you can kind of measure and weigh and, and see. And then there were your very, you know, your tangibles or your, I guess your velocities, your, uh, how hard they throw, how they, how far they can hit a ball, how fast their feet are, all these things that you can measure. And I remember they had told me they were like, and it wasn't just Milwaukee. There was a lot of scouts, right? There were scouts that people, just people talk at dinners and guys who would tell me the heart, the third one is the separator. And it's what makes a guy a major leaguer. And it was his mind. And, uh, and I just thought that was interesting because like you said, I mean, I was in sports psych, uh, to a degree, I was really excited about psychology. I really liked learning that stuff, but I didn't like that. That was just kind of, swept under the rug, if you will. Right. Like I didn't like, I didn't like how that just was assumed that we would never be able to understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there was just kind of uh, I guess some just didn't really agree with that necessarily. And again, it wasn't necessarily from Milwaukee. That was just kind of an overarching theme of scouting and where I, where I got released and I, you know, this is more of a personal story, but I ended up having the yips and uh, I couldn't throw a strike and how I ended my career. And it basically it turned into a few years of anxiety and it, it carried into things where I couldn't fly. Um, I couldn't really do things that I wasn't, that I could do. The weirdest, Logan Galbraith actually said it perfectly in the sense of, you know, you, you don't have your own back, you know, and that's kind hmm. of the first I ever felt like that. I was 26 years old and all of a sudden I couldn't throw a pitch. And I couldn't, I couldn't have played in a high school baseball game when I was 26 years old. It was, it was extremely devastating to my ego, if you will. Right. And, uh, and then, like I said, like flying, I couldn't do things. I couldn't travel. I couldn't do things that I like to do because I would get these very like paralyzing feelings that I was never used to. And 
Hmm. You know, that was a kind of what ran me out of baseball. And that was what ran me out of the opportunity to play in the big leagues. And what I saw from that was, and what I see that now in youth, high school, college, and professional athletes, and what I want to first and foremost help out with and just try to do my best part to help. And then two, obviously the, the professional side of this would be foreseeing that, right? Being able to spot somebody that is maybe prone to that. And in the professional side of that is like, obviously not signing them, you know, or signing them to a longer deal or helping them, or if they're in your system, how do you improve that? You know, so you get a good return on the player and a return on the organization. So that's the professional side. The personal side is like I just said, was my, my anxiousness. And that, that came out of left field, man. I just, I had never really felt uh, those paralyzing feelings. Like I said, I'd never felt uh, like I couldn't speak in public or I couldn't do this. It was just a really weird time. And it, it took me, it just kind of set me back for a year or two and kind of led me on this path now. But what I think, what I believe to have happened and what I think happens to people is professional athletes or high level people, CEOs, people in these positions, they're very, very good at suppressing and coping with stress. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the good part of that is also the tremendous negative. Like the good part of that is the fact that they can make it to professional baseball. Like I had to have had some traces of nervousness or anxiety beforehand. I probably just didn't pick up on it. And then the second I credited it as that, or I identified it as that the career was over, like there was no more coping, right? It was kind of an explosion and you Hmm. see this all the time with people. And so what I think, what I think of it as, and what I think of with these high level people is we cope to a level of where we're just disobeying our physiology. Right. And I did that for many, many years where it was like travel, do this at all costs, you know, okay. You just, you just had seven energy drinks before you pitched. Okay. Well now you need to drink four whiskeys to go to sleep. Now you're like somewhat hung over. So you need to have four coffees, pain pills, uh, more uppers. And then, you know, and then you got to try to sleep again. And then while you're doing that, you need to balance a, a relationship with your significant other. You have to communicate with your family. You have to travel all the way across the country. You have to ship time zones. You have to do all this stuff while you're trying to make it to the big leagues. Right. Hmm. And if you don't understand coping as a human, uh, then you're going to cope. You're going to find ways to cope and you're going to do that artificially. And that's where I talk about, you know, either it's drugs or alcohol. Um, there's other ways of coping, but you know, obviously you and I, and I think we align in the sense of, well, you can do that to a primal way of understanding your breathing, understanding your psychology, understanding your thought patterning, understanding how to frame things. And, uh, once I saw how real, uh, like an anxiety is once I really felt that and really saw what that can do, uh, that really shifted the way I thought about just living as a human. (laughs) Hmm. Oh man, that's good. So I actually had no idea that you had experienced that. So you, you've come out of the the back end of it, having really lived, lived through that. And obviously in, in recent years, learned to really manage that and, and live on the front end of it. That's super powerful, man. Um, whew, I, I want to ask more questions about that one, but just in the sake of time, 
kind of want to to move move a little bit further forward here like for, for sure. you as someone who has let's just say experienced the anxiety side and for you who now lives in the space of managing stress like were you able to recognize how important that was for for young athletes or as you're in the talent identification like how did you kind of use that knowledge to support what it was you were trying to achieve for those organizations and how are you setting out to change that uh, as kind of your master plan yeah so you look at i mean it's it's you can't it's really hard to debate that we're not overstimulated as humans right and i mean and I, I could be wrong on the date, but I think as early as 2008 or 2009, at least the Western civilizations became titled as like urbanized, right? So it's it's very it's more realistic that you're going to be in areas of power plants or you know Wi-Fi or uh, facilities or big cities compared to nature, right? Mm-hmm. And so you look at that and you go, okay, well, so all of us are essentially exposed to overstimulation. We're exposed to uh, stimulus that our minds have really never been exposed to since we've been on earth as a species. And, you know, it's, it's just like, we just know that, right? Like we know that if your cortex is overstimulated, you're going to breathe faster. And this is what I'm talking about in the sense of, it's just a matter of time. You know, I don't remember really before, I had uh, an anxiety or had a, you know, that moment of overwhelming stress. I don't like remember what my breathing was like, you know, I don't remember (laughs) what I I did necessarily. Uh, I do know now, like I'm aware of some triggers. I'm aware of some times where I can be like, okay, I'm getting a little nervous or overwhelmed. Like where's my breath rate at? How am I breathing? What's my pace of breathing? How do I slow it down? And, uh, and then it's about being aware, you know, like it's about being very conscious about, uh, what you're in front of, what are you allowing your mind to be stimulated by what type of buzz is attracting you. And I think at younger ages, you look at farm systems and athletics, or you look at high schools or colleges, well, the, the stimulation of not just your social media, your cell phone, or your, just your general living it's just, it's just too much. Like it's just too much for where our brains are at right now. It's not that we can't figure this problem out. I think that we are like, I think we're doing a really good job as a society and across the world of connecting and and recognizing this issue. And I think we're solving it slowly, but I believe that we'll get there. I hope so. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that you look at that and you have to think, well, everyone's overstimulated. And if I'm sitting in a position where I can sort of see how they breathe, what's the pace of breathing? Are they, do they breathe heavily while they talk? Do they uh, have trouble sleeping? Do they have their mouth open? I mean, there's a ton of stuff and you know that with Mm -hmm. mouth breathing or nasal breathing. So you have all these certain situations that the environment has manipulated. I mean, we haven't become mouth breathers until rather recently, if you really, look at the time that we've been on earth and a lot of that has to do with environmental exposure. I mean, it's really not hard to live now. If you think about it, if it's cold in Minnesota, we can just turn the heat on. If it's (laughs) hot in Florida, you can just turn the AC on. You know, if it's, uh, if there's, there's all this comfort that is shifting the way our physiology responds to things. And so I always look at us as like a Petri dish and your Petri dish is just, if it's not 
exposed to nature, if it's not, if you don't respect your primal needs of being a human, whether this is through breath work, cold or heat exposure, sleep, uh, under stimulating yourself and being in nature, eating the right food, eating natural. If you're not, if you're not appreciating that, then your Petri dish, it just grows bad, you know, bacteria. It just kind of funnels into this. And you see this all the time in allergies, colds, nervousness, anxiousness, you know, you see this in sickness, all these sort of things. Right. And we have societies like comfort yet, if we don't understand our primal needs, then we, we just disobey that. Does that make sense? hundred percent. It does. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of what I think is what I see with younger athletes. And it, it's just a matter of time. I mean, working with some of the pro athletes this morning, I told them, I always talk to them on, on the return, the ROI of your career. You know, the ROI of your career is just how long can you sustain and keep your nervous system in, in the state it's supposed to be in and decrease your slumps as, as a human, right? Because no matter what you're going to be put in front of exposure that is negative for your nervous system. And if that happens, you're going to start thinking quickly because there's so much things to think, even if you don't think you're thinking and that overthinking becomes over breathing or over breathing. Obviously you have a heart rate that goes wild. You don't sleep well. And that leads into a laundry list of issues that we've, I mean, a bunch of people have been able to prove the, 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 those sort of things leading to anxiety or leading to, you know, those sort of sadnesses and whatnot. And at some point it's going to pop, you know, I don't know when, you don't know when, but at some point it's going to pop if you're not aware of it. For sure. So I'm going to put this one on a T for you. Understanding all of what you've just said. You know, is there a way that we can start to quantify this? Is there a way that we can start integrating what you're talking about and solutions or, or ways to manage this or ways to train it with younger athletes, with, with pro athletes, so that we can start to, to see, be it an ROI on your investment if you're the organization or as an athlete to have a little bit more autonomy and control over, you know, this, this stimuli that's really overwhelming within our environments. Yeah. And I, I love the setup of it too, because, and I'll, I'll say that obviously CO2 testing and measuring your exhale and being able to extend that out and understand what that is. I mean, obviously if you can breathe long, if you can have a slower, longer exhale and have a higher tolerance to CO2, I mean, that's triggering your brain to breathe, right? So if I have a low threshold of CO2, then I'm probably an overbreather, which leads to all the things I just talked about, right? Mm-hmm. And what I like about a CO2 or a breathing test or like uh, the Oxygen Advantage talks a lot about bolt score and breath holding and those sorts of things. Wim Hof obviously talks a lot about breath holding. And I think all of those play a role in this and to the, the most foundational level of measuring out human performance, mental progression, uh, health, all that stuff, which I love. Right. But where I think we miss is we do all this tech technology wise. Like we look at it as let's measure HRV or let's measure, you know, the heart rate, that type of deal, or let's measure your sleep patterning. And we do all this. And then we essentially become 
we become like ingrained to the technology. So now it goes back to what I was just talking about. Like we now let the technology dictate how we think. And what I love about personal breathing measurements, so CO2 tests, for example, what I love about that is it's very intuitive. Like it, it tells you where you're at. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it's something where you learn your own system. And at MindStrong, we talk all the time, like you're your highest source of technology. Like if you can't understand the language of your breathing, then you don't really know what you're capable of that day or how to shift that day. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, that's what I love so much about just manual breath tests because it's intuitive. Like it's just, it's off feel and it's very simple. It's very matter of fact, obviously you can go into the science of it, of what that's telling you. But even if an athlete doesn't understand it or a player development doesn't understand it, um, just kind of knowing very simple things, right? Like if you keep it very simple and you say, Hey, uh, you know, CO2 tolerance, that's triggering you to breathe in. So if you're not able to exhale for a certain amount of time, then you're probably over breathing, you know, and just measure respiratory rate, you know, measure how many breaths you can do in a minute. Uh, what's watch a guy's body move and just test to see the way he does with that, you know, put him in a stressful situation, see how quick you can get to breathe through his nose. And all of those things don't require technology. And that's mm-hmm. like what I love about it is because now it becomes intuitive. It gets you to think and it gets you to understand, which is, which is something that I don't think we're overlooking as we kind of get more into it. But I think I'm biased as well. Cause I'm kind of in that space <laughs> where we talk about this sort of stuff, you know? Um, yeah, yeah that's, uh, I look at that as I think that's a very next big step to keep it simple and to understand for people who maybe aren't diving in the world of breath work or diving in the world of mental training and having breath exercises or breath hold timings where they can measure it and see progress over time. Now, are you quantifying your athletes or getting your athletes to be aware of their times and starting to have them just be a little bit more conscious on the day-to-day basis of their breath rate, of their um, CO2 tolerance, that kind of thing? Like, are you, are you having them measure that or are you parting putting measurement as a part of your, I guess, progression plan or your, how you're working with athletes? Yeah. So we use, like, I'll use a CO2 test with somebody where let's say, I'll just give an example. Let's say a guy, let's say a guy comes and he's a 27 second exhale, you know, and he, he, he breathes, he can hold a 27, 27 second long exhale and that's okay, right? And, and you know that's a decent score for a first time. If someone's never done that, you train them some mechanics, teach them how to move some oxygen around, and they can probably improve that like in that session or in that day. Yeah. And yeah. then over, I, I typically don't re-measure until two weeks. So I give them a cadence breathing where they're basically just creating lung capacity, able to control breath, able to slow down, and we do that before they work out or we do that before a game and we start very, very minimally. And then we have them track how they, how often they recognize they're breathing through their nose throughout the day. And then two weeks later, hopefully the CO2 moves up and let's say he's at now a 45 second exhale, right? And now we'll start tracking it. So we'll start baselining it. And now we want to start implementing breath holds or we want to start implementing maybe a super ventilation or start implementing uh, movement with breath holds or anything that maybe we'll start training and warming up nasal only. 
um, or we're doing things that are more aggressive, if you will. And then we'll measure it again in two more weeks. And if that continues to improve, you kind of find over time, like people kind of tap out, right? You don't just end up having a five minute exhale. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you kind of find a guy's baseline. Now this is where I think it's really important because once you get to somebody's baseline, now it actually leaves you the opportunity to have discussions because if a guy comes back to you two months later and you're measuring them or you're doing your job or you haven't seen him in a while, whatever the situation appears to be, if you can measure them and if he was at a 67 second exhale in month one and then in month two he's at a 30, well, now I have some actual ideas to ask him questions. Are you in finals week right now? Are you sick? Have you been sick? How's relationships going? And it's, I don't, I wouldn't say you just all of a sudden see a bad CO2 test and you start hammering them with these questions, but I think that it definitely leads you to ask them how life is going and you can start peeling away at some things and you can ask them, have they, uh, how have they been feeling? And I think that that gives you some, some, some actual ground to stand on when it comes to understanding the outside world of your athletes. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, we, we could spend an hour discussing the nuances of that, but I love where you're going with it. I'm, I'm in the same boat in understanding, you know, day-to-day stress, your body doesn't interpret it as different things other than, you know, cellular respiration, man, CO2. So love how you're, you're correlating the life picture and performance picture. And, um, I guess bringing that into be it mental health, physical health, versus just straight performance as well. So nice. Good on you, man. Let's, let's move forward to the mind strong project, which is really your lifetime of work. Really? This is, this is just your, all of your interest, the, the mentorship that you may wish that you had had all your learnings and, and your curiosity towards sports psychology and now breath work and how that all dovetails together. I believe that's MindStrong Project, right? But you probably have a different way to describe it. What's the MindStrong Project? Yeah, man. It's, uh, I mean, we, we essentially have it as a statement of enhancing the human experience. We try to be very primal. Um, you know, we live in essentially, essentially, like I said, mindset, breath work, and then influence. Uh, how it came about, and it, it's, it's sort of, it's, you're right. I mean, it's basically been, uh, it's been fruition of my entire life and coming into what I've always wanted to do. Uh, you know, I look at, I've always sort of looked at life. And like I mentioned earlier in the beginning of the podcast is when I was younger, I obviously had a little bit of a different childhood than other people, right? I was in classes with just one teacher and, you know, they were trying to teach me to read and I was sitting there going, I know how to read this, you know? And then, uh, obviously when I was playing baseball, I was playing up with older kids and, when I was young, I always thought that I was really weird. I thought that I was really different. Um, and I thought that that was really different. Like I just, you don't, when you're young and you feel different, that's like a really weird place to be in. You know, when you're older and you feel different, you're kind of like, ah, well, this is kind of cool, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and I just have kind of perceived that as I've aged and I've always wanted to do I've always wanted to live life the way that I wanted to live life. And MindStrong gives me the opportunity to do that. I mean, my days are very exciting. They're nervous. They're scary. You got to solve problems. You got to do all these things. 
but it's like the alignment that I've always wanted. It's, it's putting me in front of people and it's putting me in ways of learning. And it's like a classroom for myself, which is exactly what I've tried to design my life to be like, and then find a way to make money doing it. So you can do it for a career. <laughs> and I've worked really hard at that. And I think when I realized I could do that was when 2013, as I kind of told you that Dodgers story and writing that in my phone, uh, that Pete guy who I mentioned, who's now with Cleveland Indians, he was coaching at a college in 2013. So I'll bring you back a little bit. But after my first year of professional baseball, he asked me to come and speak to his college team and he paid me to do it. And I had so much fun doing it. I was so scared, first of all, for like a month beforehand. I wanted to like puke every night. I didn't want to. <laughs> I ended up talking at it and I had a blast and I talked about purpose and standards. It was not called the Diamond Series yet, but it was, uh, you know, I talked about some things that I, that I believed in and I just talked off the cuff and they paid me to do it. So I went home with probably the largest money I had made in a day in my entire life. And, uh, and I spoke about something I was very passionate about. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this would be really cool, right? This would be a really fun way to live. Like, how do I get more of these checks? Right. And, uh, I kept playing baseball for a few years and how Mindstrong came about was when I got out of the Milwaukee Brewers organization, I started coaching young kids and I just was a little, I was, uh, I was like, I can help these kids. Like I thought I could, I don't know if I do that or not. I hope I, do, <laughs> I, uh, I felt like I could, I felt like I could put together content that would be fun to teach and people would be interested to learn. And I like, I like the classroom setting. I like being a teacher. I like learning from teachers. I like doing these things. So one day I was riding on the bike with one of my best friends, Steve McGuigan, and we were sitting on the bike on a Monday and we didn't want to work out. And we were, and you know, those days you're just moving your feet and you're sitting there going, I don't really want to do this. And your buddy's going, neither do I. And so we weren't going to work out. And uh, Steve said, let's just get it done. Let's just move through it. We'll keep moving through the workouts. Let's just keep moving the weights. Let's do the whole workout. And I said, for sure, let's do it. Mind strong Monday. And, uh, I said that and he goes, yep. he goes, mind strong Monday. So we wrote it on the whiteboard and we crushed the workout and we just kept saying that whole day while we coached mind strong Monday, boys, come on, mind strong Monday. And I liked it so much. And this was kind of when I wanted to start kind of pushing out some of the content I'd been creating on my own for a few years. So we, we did free seminars. We did free seminars biweekly and we called them mind strong Mondays. And we started that in 2015. And, uh, it was really cool, man. I think after the fifth or sixth seminar, we ended up having over 200 people come and we had to rent a high school auditorium and it just was kind of gaining steam. So we did that and, uh, it just kind of grew. Didn't really think about it being a business yet. And uh, in 2017, I wanted to get more serious about it. And I had a couple guys, Dave Fisher, who's uh, playing hockey over in Austria very, very good friend of mine, Brian Peters, who was with the Houston Texans at the time, also a very, very good friend of mine. They had came to me and I had been kind of taking them through breathing and guinea pigging them through some breath work and cold exposure and things I was learning on my own. And they really, them and Steve and Tom Booski just kind of stared at me one day and said, dude, you're doing this. Like, we're going to help you put MindStrong together and make it a real thing. And so we started as a company in 2017 legitimately 
Um, but that was sort of, it just organically happened. And we've always sort of believed in that to this day too, is just organically put together an experience that people will, will, will gravitate toward, but then also enhance and, uh, you know, not to be right, but to try to be a little bit less wrong about something you're curious about and try to put it in front of people where it helps them, uh, enjoy their time and enjoy their experiences in, in their lives. Man, that's so good. So it's wild because your timeline is so similar to mine, man. Like after the 2012 Olympics, retiring and then all of a sudden it's realizing there's opportunities to speak and, and exploring that. And then just really wanted to create something to share my life experience and make a difference and add value and that slowly evolving over time. Like I totally get it. And you're living it, man. It's... <laughs> It's happening, which is, which is incredible. And you found a way to, to take your, what you're passionate about, what you're curious about, continue to evolve yourself. Just like you said, like every day is your classroom, which is awesome. You're still evolving. You're not stuck in a box. And then to bring people on that journey with you and to show them their best selves. Like that's the dream. That's it. Yeah. yeah I appreciate that. It's, yeah, it's not there yet, but it's fun. Let me put it that way. <laughs> but you're but you're doing it, and that's that's the thing. And and I love I love the organic, humble beginnings of just it, it starts off as a saying, and then once a week or once every two weeks, and then the fact that you guys did your seminar or uh, you know session every two weeks, and man, two hundred people showing up after five weeks is legit. Like you're yeah, on the ground was, doing that, it, right? That, yeah, that was mind blowing. That was kind of, that was sort of when we knew we could grab attention. You know, we didn't. I don't think either Steve or I knew because Steve and I were the only ones doing it. I don't think we had any idea that would happen, but it but it did. So it was really cool. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, let's dive into MindStrong a little bit more because I'm I love what you guys are doing. I love the culture you've created. You know, speaking of culture, like what is the culture of MindStrong? Yeah, so it's uh. <laughs> it's barefoot. It's breathing. It's, it's heat and cold exposure. It's uh, thinking, thought-provoking. It's dinners. It's community. Uh, the culture of it is very. Um, it's very uh, progressive, forward-thinking, and forward-moving. I think I you said it. I don't want to. I got to use your way of looking because I love it. High-performance hippies, you know. I, <laughs> That's sort of the, the culture of it. No, again, MindStrong is very organic too, man. I mean, we have a, so we have, we're part of the Minnesota MASH and MASH performance. They, they all sort of run together. We've, we're all, uh, we've all been working together since 2012. We, uh, I am obviously the founder of MindStrong, Steve and Tom Buski, the founders of MASH baseball. And then Nate Stemper is the strength and head strength coach and founder of MASH performance. And we've all worked together. Nate trained me when I played with the Milwaukee Brewers. Steve and I played college baseball when we were in 2010 and always talked about working together and doing this stuff together while we were playing. And, uh, and Tom Booski and I have become very, very good friends through those guys. And it, it, it's a very, the culture of it is very family. It's very friend oriented. We have people who come and see us from across the country all the time after their seasons. Uh, we travel together. We've all lit. We have, there's now 11 full-time employees at MASH Baseball. I think there's four at MASH Performance. And then 
uh, we have myself and two other guys uh, who do MindStrong, who kind of help with the social media, Nolan Johnson and Austin Hansen. He does with youth and high school athletes. And so we have this large group of people now that has sort of grown from that original nucleus of guys. But it's, uh, it's very it's – very, the way I tell people our culture is the reason why it's so special is that if you have an idea – I tell people this very often, the probability of your idea ever working is so slim and so fragile because pretty much anything that you think about at its core is rather stupid if you think about it. (laughs) So the probability of success of your original thought of what you want to do and how long it'll take, it's very fragile and it's very, like I said, it's just not very smart at first because the world can't see the world through your lens. And what I love about our family and our friendships and our, and our ability to work together is we've never denied each other's visions. Like we've supported each other's ideas for all of the years that we've been together. We've almost been working together for almost a decade and people have talked to us a lot about that. We've all lived together underneath the same roof at some point. Um, we've all supported each other. I mean, guys who Tony Vaca is with us now, and I could go on with all the other guys and why they're here. And we've all just helped each other out. So there's like a very blood, sweat, and tear type of vibe of the guys who work together and coach together. But what I think is so special is what I just said, right? You're, you need to surround yourself with people who advance your thinking, who advance your ideas and people who are, they're not, they're, they're not going to allow you to not capitalize on, on that thought. And we've always done that. I, I don't know. I don't, we don't talk about it often, but it's very well known. It's very well known that that's what it is. If you have an idea, instead of someone essentially shooting it down, it's more of a okay, how can we do that? Or how can you do that? Or what avenue are you going to do? Or let's try it, you know? And uh, we've just, we've just grown like that and we push each other and we have a lot of fun. I mean, at the end of the day, not that it's all been fun. We've had our heartbreaks, but we just have a blast. And I think that when you're fun, you're creative. And when you're creative, you're acting. And, and when you act, you create momentum, you know, and momentum achieves results and results essentially requires discipline and you, you discipline yourself as you create that momentum and you see what you're capable of. And, and we do, we think we can do really cool things and we've never denied each other of that. And we've had things that have been intimidating. Sure. And we've had things that have been scary. We've bombed in front of people talking to them like we've done things, but, but we have a slogan at, at our facility and with us. And we always say, if it fails, we'll just go fishing. And, uh, and I think that that's really <laughs> you know? like I think that that's really powerful to surround yourself with people who allow you to grow your ideas because we don't get enough of that, and uh, that's our culture. And I think people, the people we coach and train, um, you know, we have a twenty thousand square foot facility here. We have two locations for sun on ice, and we train a youth all the way up to professional athletes pretty much across all sports. We we're just now starting to get heavily into general pop. And uh, obviously we've consulted with, we've consulted with every level of college sports. I think that that's pretty cool. We've done division one, two, three and junior colleges across every, a lot of different sports at this point. And uh, we just have fun. And our goal is to continue to push that on people too. And it's never to be right. You know, like that's what I think is so valuable as a teacher 
is it's not that I know how to live life. It's not that I figured out the answers and I'm, you know, I'm done. Uh, there's, you know, I tell people the wisdom of our culture, the experience of our culture is ours. It's ours as a group and it's ours as individuals, but the knowledge you can have. And so if you trust us to keep advancing our knowledge, then, you know, it's a place you want to come to. So, you know, open minds, curious people and, and exciting stuff. And it just, it creates a really cool family type atmosphere. And that's what I love. That's what we love. I, you know, I don't, we don't have a, we don't have boundaries. I don't know how far we'll go, but um, we just, that's kind of the vibes. <laughs> it's, it's so good. And it's getting, it's getting tribal and I can't help but think about people coming around, you know, you call it fire and ice, but you know, a sauna, a cold tub, talking about ideas, there's, there's community, there's connection, you're in nature. I mean, we're really, I'm trying to do this over in Australia as well. Like we're really kind of pulling it back into the tribal side. And you talk about play, you talk about curiosity, you talk about adults playing and experiencing and learning. I mean, it, it's not a single point in time. Did you talk about throwing a pitch better? or increasing your batting average. You know what I'm saying? Like the, I think we're transcending sports performance here by diving deeper into the human animal. And I love it. I love what you guys are about. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, well, you know, nature is our greatest teacher and, and I firmly believe in that. And if you study, if you just study nature, it tells you how to, it tells you how to live. You know, uh, one of my philosophies of coaching athletes is I always break everything down into human performance and, terms of hunting and recovery you know if we're going out to hunt that's okay that's stressful you know that's just like lifting that's just like a game that's just like a practice but at the end of the day you're a human that is in a black box with a nervous system you know you're you're not identified by your sport so what I always I, I like to suggest this to people is you know choose a platform that you think is your greatest teacher you know, choose a career that scares you because that'll teach you. And and I think that intuitively we all know deep down what teacher, what platform we're supposed to follow. You know, MindStrong at the end of the day, it challenges me more than anything. It forces me to talk to people. It forces me to listen. It forces me to communicate and it forces me to think and solve problems and be exposed and be wrong. And all these things that scared me as a young kid and still scare me now, I just continue to try to put them in front of me. But I, I don't think we stress that enough. You know, choose the platform that you think is the teacher that will give you the opportunity to essentially live your dream at all times. You know, we're already in the dream. Like we're in the dream right now. And, uh, and so when you're in the dream, you know, what platform teaches you? And that doesn't mean that you just have to quit everything and do what you think is that. No, I mean, just you're in the dream. And so respect the dream, but your platform should be a position of what you yourself personally need to overcome and, uh, and what you need to be exposed to. And I think that that, you know, we hear a lot of stuff about chase your passion, find your purpose. Yeah, I dance with that a lot and I ask myself that a lot, but I, I always come back to what I just said. Uh, you know, I just would rather have the platform be my teacher and, uh, and let it expose me to what I'm supposed to be exposed to. And that'll be my greatest lesson. And, and when you look at athletes, you look at performance, 
I mean, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, nature tells us we, we need to learn how to breathe. That's our lowest hanging fruit. I know the Art of Breath guys, they brought that to me a few years ago, and I love that. You know, it's our lowest hanging fruit. Like, learn how to breathe. It controls the whole system. It controls the way you think. It controls the way you recover, the way that your, uh, your immunity is, the way you, all those stuff. And then eat well. You know, simply eat well. It's hard to eat well. It's hard to find ways to eat well. And, uh, and you know, you learn about your gut and how that makes you think right and all those sort of things. And then move. Like, it's fun to move. Like, we are made to move. You're made to, mm-hmm. You were made to hunt. Like, you were made to leave the cave and go hunt, you know. And, and then when you got back from the, cave, or from the hunt, go to sleep. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, everything outside of, of nature's law is a bonus. And that's where I look at it as get yourself primal. Uh, connect with people, find a good tribe, be with that tribe, add value to the tribe, be honest to the tribe. And then, uh, and then outside of uh, what I just mentioned, you know, put yourself in a position where the platform of living is what you intuitively know you're supposed to do. Like you intuitively know this is going to challenge you to be the person that you know you're supposed to be. And uh, I think that that's, you know, I, that's the way we look at it. And that's the way I look at it. And I, I, but I believe in that entirely. <laughs> Bang on man. And how I'm just super curious, like, cause you have you know, Brian Peters, you mentioned, so you got football, uh, you got yeah. uh, Ben Reemsdyke. He's uh, an ambassador with you guys. You're doing some work with him. So you're on the ice, like you're, you're moving into professional sport cultures. Like, when you're working with these athletes or when you're jamming, like you're not talking about football, right? You're not talking about hockey. You're just evolving and pushing yourselves. And you do that through breath work. You do that through heat exposure and cold exposure. Like what does a training session briefly look like when you're coming together and, and vibing? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm happy you asked that. Yeah, we, uh, we don't, we talk, I mean, they poke at me about questions and I'm kind of our, our lead guy, if you will. I kind of run the sessions and run our training. Uh, it's very organic. Again, it's very intuitive. I mean, I, I, I schedule stuff and I plan stuff and I progress them. We talked about like CO2 and those sort of things. Like everybody does do that. And we, we do measurement, we measure stuff. I mean, they, we do do HRV and, and we do recovery and those sort of things. So, I mean, it's not like we disobey, some of the things that you, I do like to use, but how our sessions look and how we train is basically I break it down to, if you look at your reptilian brain, right? Remember respecting nature, your reptilian brain, your fear center is like, if you can, if you can understand how to increase the threshold to that and understand how to change the state of the reptile that runs wild in your brain, well, it not only like helps you mentally, but it's also like a huge byproduct of motor skills and, you know, balance coordination and, and all these sort of things that make you a good athlete. So it doesn't really matter what sport it is. You know, like I said, you're in a black box, your brain's just in a box and you have this nervous system and, uh, and everything in that we can do to strengthen that and, and test it is going to make you a better player, but it's going to make you more confident. And it's going to give you the ability. I tell the athletes this all the time at the foundation of what you do, it's just your ability to make the right decision. So like Van Reems, like perfect example, he always talks to me about how, well, why would I take a thousand extra shots if I'm just in the right place to score the goal? You know, and uh, <laughs> they put me in the NHL to score goals, not to take 5,000 extra shots. 
Now, don't take that away for any young kids who are listening. Like, he practices tremendously a lot, but he thinks like that, you know, and Peters does the same thing. Like, why would I not put myself in a position where I can visually see the field and execute the play that I'm getting paid money to do? And so, and it, to understand that at its, at its deepest core is really just being able to calm the reptile on your brain. And that gives you the opportunity to problem solve and make decisions uh, to your internal, you know, value moral system of behaviors. And then you have the best shot of producing right now, right here and make it happen, which is the highest level of performance is being able to execute in the moment. So when we do these sessions, a lot of it mentally is me sort of uh, creating a mental framework about around what I just said and uh, sort of tying us into having a focal point, having some sort of intention. And then we, we practice breathing, right? So we practice breath uh, more so of, you know, a typical day would be just like some sort of cadence breathing where we're warming up the body. I kind of call that the dynamic warm up. Uh, you're just breathing in and out at the same pace, all nose. And then we, we typically add like a hiss or some sort of humming so we can get some, uh, you know, vasodilator in there, start opening up the blood and get, get your body into like a more calm state. And then depending on the day, it just depends on the working set. So a working set for just for reference, I think people will be able to recognize a super ventilation or like a Wim Hof style breathing. Uh, that sort of depends on how guys are doing, depending on what their week is or where they're at, or maybe sometimes we just want to push it. That happens every now and then too, or we just want to kind of push it and go into deep breath holds. But if I'm controlling it, it's typically not to stress. It's more to just be recovered and alert your system. Mm -hmm. uh, and then afterwards, we usually finish with some type of finisher breathing. And then we start right after that, we do some movement. So whether that's crawling around, moving out, some sort of animal thing, Brian Peters, and I, he usually wrestles me. You know, that's kind of like the, the mini <laughs> And then he choked beating up Rafiki. Everyone calls me Rafiki from Lion King. So then you know, he kind of beat me up a little bit. But then, uh, then after that, we just go off feel. So we'll do, we'll sit in the sauna. Um, we usually wait until, you know, sauna or ice. And uh, the sauna and the ice, it, it just kind of depends. We do some days where we just do ice and we do push-ups in between rounds of the ice and create some sort of constriction and then back into the ice and, and we just kind of help each other. You actually, I don't know if we were on air or not when you mentioned no egos. One of the things that I'm very fortunate with these group of guys is that you're never wrong, right? Like it, you've, I don't think anyone's ever forced somebody to stay in the ice longer or stay in the sauna longer. Uh, we've created that community feel to communicate and talk about what your body doing. Um, mm -hmm. Sauna and your heartbeat is going really fast if it's a stressful day we typically try to push each other to stay in there for another two to three minutes max. Uh, if it's a recovery day, we take it right to when you can feel your heart rate kind of jumps and then we measure this too. But, um, if it starts to spike, then we get out, you know, and then same thing with the ice. Sometimes we really push each other on the ice and see how long we can stay. And then other days we just do a minute in the ice as a cool off. And sometimes we don't even have the ice as cold, you know? So, it just sort of depends on what our training days in the weight room have looked like. Um, we've become really close friends. And so I think <clears throat> kind of knowing mentally how our weeks have been 
is sort of that as well. And then it's always cool to just boys being boys or, you know, whoever we're with and we just push each other to the max. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of been the, the energy we've created in the fire and ice sessions. Love it. And and I just want to create some context for people that don't, let's just say have the luxury of understanding it the way that you and I do and, and the experience that we have, like really what you're doing is you're playing with stress. You're, you're playing with the environmental stress and then you, how you manage that stress. So for those that are listening, like for you to think that the more ice that you do and the more saunas that you do, the better you get, you don't no, no, those are, those are both stressors. So I love how you manage those in a way that, you know, if you're feeling fresh or if you're pushing it and you're feeling good, like you dive in a little bit deeper or if you're on recovery day, well, you understand the second that your, your heart skips up a little bit higher to that next level, like that's when you step out. And what you're doing fundamentally is you're creating space for feel. And I think oh. a lot of high performance programs, especially, like, you know, coming from a national team program, coming from this, coming from that, a lot of it's based on stats about performance and never is it about feeling. There's not a lot of space for feel. The feel is suck it up, perform and, and complete whatever that you set out to complete. There's, there really is not a conversation around feel, right? And you guys are creating space for that, which is so awesome. Well, I think you just nailed it right there. And I hope people really grasp and hold on to what you just said, because that again comes back to, your highest level of technology is your own feel. You know, at the end of the day, you, and when you played volleyball and when I played baseball and when you train now or when spike ball, cause you're a big spike ball guy, which I love, right? Uh, <laughs> whenever you're doing that, like ultimately it is you and yourself, like it is you and your feel. And so if you don't create space for that, you're missing that in in my opinion is the lowest of the lowest hanging fruit as a performer is understanding your feel. And when you can understand your feel, then you understand your internal dialogue. When you do that, you understand your breathing. And, uh, and, and we have to build that. And that did not come easy, man. I mean, this is, we've been practicing, I've been practicing breath work and ice exposure for five years now, you know, and I, and it didn't really, get into the community until this last year aggressively. So, you know, it, it's, we're, I'm making it sound as if like this was just, people just went, Oh yeah, let's do this and breathe and, you know, have feel and let's try this and try that. Like it, it wasn't that it wasn't as easy as you and I are making it sound as I'm sure, you know, and you're in your same way. Right. But as performers, like feel is the bottom line of what you do. I tell baseball pitchers, no matter what, it's you on the mound. I will never be out there to throw a pitch with you. Your mom and dad will never be out there to swing the bat with you. Whatever we perceive your box score as, your statistics as, like you're the one that has it. It's your career. It's your life. Like it comes back to decisions. It's your decisions. And how are you supposed to know your decisions that optimize behavior if you don't recognize feel, if you don't get an understanding and create a space for your emotions after thinking, or if you don't understand your physiology. And I think you can get technology to a degree, but at the same time, like if you believe in that entirely, then you become the language of technology. You're basically Mm -hmm. at the mercy of what technology tells you. Yeah. Full on. Well, you, you, reminds me and I want to 
say his name, just Brian McKenzie uh, of, yeah. of Art of Breath, who's a, a mentor at a distance for me as well, made a huge impact in my life. But his book, Unplugged, was a nice wake-up call for me because uh, I was really looking for measurements and trying to level up. And then I realized I was outsourcing my leveling up to other things and to technology. And I realized that I wasn't going deeper inside. I was going further outside. So yeah. you're nailing it. You're nailing it. Now let, let's move to the last one here with the tail end. This, this has been a long one. I don't even know how, how long it's been, but it's just flown by, bro. Um, I want to touch on the diamond series because it's really important. And it seems like it's fundamentally been at the baseline of what you've done through the MindStrong project. So can you just give a little context about what the diamond series is? Yeah. So in how it's exposed is it, it's obviously baseball background and it comes off a of baseball diamond. So you look at home plate, first base, second and third, and uh, it essentially starts at home plate, which is your purpose and you're establishing and creating awareness to your purpose. And once you can understand and kind of evolve that over time, you, you acquire these standards and values of your life which become decision-making opportunities for your systems, which is at second base. And your systems is the sort of stuff we're talking about right now, right? That's training, breath work, uh, heat and ice exposure, community, what you eat, uh, how you sleep, <clears throat> and creating that sort of uh, space and then rounding it out at third base as your vision, you know? So you're always competing in the moment but you kind of like to keep that carrot out in front at third base, which is your vision, what kind of excites and fuels you with the knowing that you're probably never going to reach, you know, who you are. And I say this to people a lot. It's like, if you are, if you're becoming who you want to become, you would already be there, right? Like it's, you don't just get to a, a goal or a result and realize like you're done now, you know, visions are, are meant to keep us, you know, going and those sort of things. And so that's what the diamond series is. And we just kind of run, we give it a, a system and a philosophy to talk mentally uh, and then to work physically and then to create uh, there at the end with your vision. And, and that's, that's the funneling system of what it is, uh, how it happened. I'm going to give you away my nugget cause you'll like this and this will be funny for people to hear, but how it happened was after I did that presentation in 2013 to that university, a, a corporate had heard me speaking about, heard me speaking in some facilities, I guess. And I don't remember how it exactly happened, but I think in 2014 or 15, uh, this corporate company had reached out to me and asked me to talk to their sales team. And, uh, I mean, if you think we're like organic now, you know, kind of high performance hippies, you should have seen me when I was in, you know, 24. <laughs> <laughs> I was for sure just kind of moving on. So, uh, you know, so I was just, I was just a guy that just kind of liked reading and talking to people and working out. So that was what I did. And then every now and then people would ask me to speak and I'd go out and speak and just kind of hang out. And so this company had asked me to speak to their sales team and I said, sure, I'll do it. Like, yeah, come on over, you know, we'll talk, we'll hang out, we'll have some good times. And, uh, so the guy, the, the main boss, the manager of the sales team comes early that morning and he's all dressed up in a suit and tie, dude. I started getting so nervous right away. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to know how to talk in this. This guy has a suit on. And, uh, and so he had asked me, he goes, well, what are you going to speak about? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to talk to you about your purpose and your standards and, you know, your systems and such and those sort of things. And he goes, yeah, yeah, but what's it called? 
And I was like, what do you mean? What's it called? And he, I was like, it's called your purpose and your standards and your systems. You know, I don't know. It's, that's what it's called. And he goes, uh, he goes, no, like, well, don't you have like a brochure or like a topic or what are you about to run us through? What's the title of the seminar? And I, on the fly, I went, Oh, the diamond series. You're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was like, Oh, that's what it is. Like, yeah, it's the diamond series. And so I gave up my presentation. I knew what I was going to speak about. I just didn't have a name for it. <laughs> so I said the diamond series. And, uh, after it was over, I was so nervous. Cause I was like, well, was that good? Is everyone okay? I didn't know. And I wasn't going to ask because, you know, I was trying to act like I was super confident. And uh, when I got done speaking, the guy who was the leader of the sales team, he looks at me and goes, Diamond Series, Harvey, this is great. In fact, we're going to use the Diamond Series. And I remember <laughs> he loved it. And uh, and that was when we started, you know, when we started doing Mind Strong Mondays, we started practicing the Diamond Series. So that was, uh, that was kind of how the name came about. It was a funny time. <laughs> Diamond Series, love it. That's, that's brilliant, man. Well, why don't we close on, yeah. on a diamond series? Uh, you took me through this on, uh, on my episode when I was a guest on the mind strong project sure. podcast. And I'd love, I'd love to give you an opportunity to, uh, to hit a grand slam here for, for your diamond series. So let's open right. it up. Uh, obviously you've shared a ton and there might be a little bit of carryover from, you know, the, the deep minutia that you shared, but you know, top level, what's your purpose, bro? Yeah, man. Uh, you know, I've, as I've asked this to many high performers like yourself and people across the world, I, I you know, it, it is it is somewhat tailored because I ask this to people all the time and I've created my own answer off of that. And um, I look at my purpose as, is, you know, a couple of years ago when I was younger, I would have said change the world. I, I you know, I want to change the world. And I think as I've kind of gotten older and I've been put in positions of kind of realizing that I've realized two things like one, I personally probably can't change the world. And, uh, and then two, you know, my purpose is always going to be evolving. And so what I mean by that is, okay, well, if I still want to add change, if I still want to be a positive environment and I realize that I'm just a human, well, then I have to be very, very in tune with myself. So I have to be very in tune with change. It's like the biggie quote, right? Can't change your, the world unless you change yourself. Um, mm -hmm. I look at that as that is something that I really put inside my own well-being. I look at my purpose is to, is to not try to change the way people live or change the way things are, are or try to be right but to just essentially like chase my own curiosities that I know will improve the people around me. And I really do believe in energy in alignment um, with the universe and that type of stuff. And I believe that if I do that to the best of my ability, if I just at least, if I at least just answer the call of myself, if I just at least help create a positive language for the environment around me, then I do believe that that pushes out to somebody else. And I think that that pushes out to somebody else. And and you look at that and what I've come up with out of that thinking is that we're all just in this together. We're all just hanging out together. We're sharing the earth together and, uh, and we're all connected. So my job is to be very good at my job. And, uh, and, and I want to give people the ability to understand that they have the, 
they have the option to create uh, an identity uh, through the service to others. And I think that they, that we have the opportunity to choose our struggle. And, uh, and that's what I always want to be doing. So that's what I round out my purpose as is that I know that life is hard and I know that there's going to be problems and there's going to be a struggle. And I just want to make sure that I do my due diligence in choosing my struggle. And uh, I think that I do that. I think that I choose what I'm willing to struggle for all the time. And, uh, and that's just enhancing the experience of humans around me. Man. Amazing. So good. There's a little, little stoic in there as well. I, I like it. Um, let's, let's move to standards then. So first base, are there standards that you've set for yourself, kind of your, your modus operandi, um, or I guess your, your level, like what have you created for yourself on your day to day? Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I did mention that a little bit. I just didn't say it was standards, but I, you know, for me, I look at my standards in those four categories of what nature's taught me, right? Is breathing, how am I breathing? How am I properly breathing? How am I eating? Uh, what's my nutrition and my water intake like? Uh, am I moving? I mean, I love to move. I move every day. And whether that's, I, I just call training and lifting movement, right? So I, I love moving, whether that's playing spike ball, whether that's playing wiffle ball, softball, running, lifting, trail running, whatever it is, movement, and then sleep, you know, and I look at those as if I, if I execute on those, then I'm going to be in the best position to react optimally that help people around me and they create the behaviors that I want. And so I just keep that very simple. I don't allow that to dictate everything. Like what I mean by that is I don't have to get up and meditate for a half hour to feel like I executed on my standard. Uh, I keep that as simple as breathing through my nose very consciously. And I do do that every day. I do spend time uh, practicing breath. If I'm coaching, I work on my mechanics, whether I'm standing up, sitting down, uh, I just practice breathing. And, uh, and I know what that does for my health and my mind. So I make sure that that's, that's in the forefront of my standards. I mean, a cold shower every morning forces me to practice breathing. Um, just non-negotiable. And these are my non-negotiables. I don't, I'm not going to have a conversation with somebody that, that would deteriorate me from executing these, you know? And so it's the same thing with my nutrition. It's so hard to eat natural and uh, cook and do all these things, especially as an entrepreneur. So I don't become like a slave to that, but I definitely have it as a huge priority to eat well. Um, and make sure that that's a part of my weekly choices and my daily ch choices. And then, and then movement, like movements and non-negotiable. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to discuss moving with you. You know, we're not, I'm not going to allow myself to have a conversation, uh, that doesn't allow me to move that day, you know? So it's just a non-negotiable. And then same thing with sleep. Uh, it's just a non-negotiable. I'm just going to make sure that I sleep. Uh, that doesn't mean I need to be in like a perfect bed. I mean, there's a lot of times I sleep on my floor just to remind myself that I can sleep on the floor. I don't know if that's good or bad, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I can sleep on the floor, but it's the point of executing sleep. And uh, I think if you create those for me personally, as a non-negotiable, uh, if I execute on those, I'm in a really, really good place again, I've said it a bunch, not to be right, but to, to be in a good position to execute in the moment with whatever I'm doing. Yeah. I love it, man. 
it's funny how our, our power words are so similar. It feels like I'm, I'm talking to myself right now. So good. <laughs> Love it. Um, in terms of systems, maybe uh, we'll, we'll cut this one uh, nice and tight. A- any, yeah. any systems that, that are top of mind that, that you want to share with, uh, with the listeners? Yeah, I just have, uh, I mean, the systems, and I'll keep it real short on that too. I like that you said that. The shortness part of my systems is very simple. Morning, morning and night are just two things that I don't call it time. I mean, if I have two hours in the morning, I'm super pumped and I definitely try to get a long morning uh, and I definitely try to get long nights, but life doesn't sometimes give me the option to do that. But I just have uh, systems in place where, again, these are more non-negotiables, but Every morning I, I drink uh, a liter of water. Um, I put a little Himalayan salt in there and a lemon and I distilled water and I shake that up and I just sit there very, very quietly. I don't talk to anybody. I don't look at my phone and I just drink the liter of water. Uh, and then that's sort of my, like, that's my harv time. You know, that's my thinking time. That's my water in me. That's a system that just triggers me to start thinking positive. So I make my bed non-negotiable drink the water, non-negotiable, and all that's done very silently. And then, uh, and then at night, um, I try to get away from light and I try to just kind of unwind and very quietly, I, I try to avoid any thought provoking conversations, anything along those lines. And I try to always spend my nighttime, um, my girlfriend doesn't get pumped all the time because I like to be quiet then too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> doesn't make for good pillow talk. Eh? Yeah, she <laughs> doesn't like that. But uh, it's the same thing. So I try to finish the same way that I end. I don't try to execute on journaling or all the time. I although I love to. Um, I just try to give myself that time, and I don't worry about how long it is. But I know I'm going to have that time. Yeah, I I just laugh because. Julia hates it when I sleep with tape on my mouth because <laughs> there, there's a distinct moment where it's like, okay, I'm I'm out. <laughs> oh, dude, Chelsea, my girlfriend Chelsea will she's gonna laugh super hard when she hears that you said that. She, she goes, Is it tape on the mouth? <laughs> okay, man. Uh, you summarize of your your life really here and a lot of your progressions, and so. The, you're I there's so much of me in what you're saying it, it really is amazing to hear it and uh, I know you have a lot of different visions and it's tough to say what an end vision is but in this yeah. moment today you know what's your end vision yeah man I, I mean I'm working on it right now and uh and yeah I think the not this isn't a vision that I have for like the next 60 years but yeah I think the vision that I'm really working towards right now is I'm trying to execute and we're getting close. Like we are getting close. We're actually working on it currently, but I'm trying to execute uh, having a like greenhouse style type gym where it's very nature driven. It's very primal. It's very, uh, it has your ability to, you know, gravel walking, your barefoot training and grass. And it's, it's full four season type deal. Um, You know, where we would have the ability to have uh, a chef there, um, chef Ryan Hoffman, he's the man. So hopefully, uh, him and I, we keep moving forward, but he would be doing the cooking and, and we'd be an in season organic type stuff where we eat well, we'd have breathing sessions. If you're following my standards, this would be my vision, right? And then, uh, mm-hmm. and we'd have daily movements that would be more of like an organic intuitive type movement where it would be similar, but it'd be off the cuff a lot too. 
and then uh, the ability to sort of down regulate and finish your days. And that, that facility would serve as like a workshop. So what I want to do is I want to bring some of the best speakers and thought provoking people I've met. And I want to bring them to workshops where we open up that community and that energy to the public and people from around the world, essentially, where we have, uh, where we have a speaking presentation followed by, uh, movement and sauna and ice and breath works finished with a dinner. And, uh, I'm working on that right now. And, uh, and you know, we have a lot of the pieces and I think you'll see that from MindStrong here in the future. And, uh, and that just kind of puts together everything that I love the most in life. I mean, my perfect day is, is being around people I love, training with them, moving with them, learning, learning, and, and being connected to uh, thought-provoking ideas, giving out ideas, and having people advance that. And then I always tell people at the end of the day, I want to have dinner with you. And, uh, and that's sort of how I want MindStrong to formulate our workshops and our type of energy and, and just build uh, that, like you've said a lot, the tribal I want to build that tribal uh, energy through workshops and, and open it up to have people be around us and we can meet people and wherever that goes, it goes, but it would definitely make the days really fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I, it's really wild. Just once again, timelines so similar, but my calling is so similar to yours. Like that's just what I feel. Absolutely. I am seeking. I'm wanting to create. There's a deep gut feeling that that's what I want as well. And I love that you're just going for it, man. You're doing it like a greenhouse gym. Yeah. <laughs> no brainer. Um, and then the dinners and the connection and the exposure and building community, man, you're, you're living it. You're doing it. So I see you, I see you from the other side of the world and it's, it's incredible to experience the growth and to be a part of it, man. And I just want to say thanks for, for letting me in for, for this podcast and for our jams and also for sharing your gifts with the world, bro. Keep on going. No, always, man. I appreciate that too. And above all, it's just been great talking to you again. I, I mean, I've followed you ever since we connected and I think that that goes back to everything we've talked about. It's so easy to, to jam out with you. Right. But it's, it's just fun and it's fuel, you know, humans are fuel and you're a huge fuel source for, for myself and, and the others around me from all the way across the world, which I think is so cool, dude. And, and, uh, it's the same way, man, it's right back at you. I know we'll, we'll obviously stay aligned and, and continue to help push each other, but I'm very, very fortunate to know you, man. And I appreciate the space to have this conversation. It's what it's about, man. Well, thanks so much. Stay on the line for a sec, but, uh, for this podcast, that's it, man. Appreciate you. Absolutely, dude. Enjoy the day. I just wanted to say a big thank you for listening. I truly appreciate you and the time that you've given myself and Harvey to share what's on our minds to hopefully inspire you to evolve your curiosity and just really create some context around the deep layers of performance and how the game within the game is, is so critical. If you found value in this and you enjoyed this conversation, then please feel free to take a screenshot of this and share it on Instagram. You can tag Offball Athlete, myself, Martin J. Reader. Harvey's on Instagram as well at Martin underscore time one five, as well as the MindStrong Project. And if you have some time, please feel free to leave a five-star review and a rating of this podcast as 
really, this is just the beginning. I'm working on this solo, but there's so many people that I want to have conversations with and include, and I just want to appreciate you as a listener uh, as we get this off the ground. So thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your shares, and I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode.